What brings a community together? Shared insights? Shared conversations? Welcome to Open Door by Cox Communities, tackling the big questions on the minds of smart community business leaders. Welcome back to Open Door by Cox Communities, where we're providing information for you to consider when making decisions for your multifamily communities. Discover the latest trends and technologies that are making some multifamily business owners stand out. I'm your host, Bess Friedman, CEO of Brown Harris Stevens. Today, we're discussing how restorative spaces can instigate connection and the best ways to create community and purposeful lifestyles in a mixed use environment. And I'm very pleased to be joined right now for the discussion by partner at Matter Real Estate Group, Jim Stewart, and Christine Headland, the Director of New Build Development at Cox Communities. Well, welcome, Christine and Jim. I would like to begin our discussion. Jim, I'm going to go to you first with why you chose the name Uncommons for the property. I think in many ways, it first was just a response to the boring naming conventions that seemed to kind of permeate my industry. Everything is a plaza, a union, a square, a this or that. So we were really you know, focusing our energy and intent early on was to establish a certain tonality, a certain indifference to people to say that this is different and took the approach like you would with any brand, hired a great agency, did some research around the personality of the property, the messaging, the ethos of the property, and then went through a series of exercises. But I will say once presented with the name Uncommons, I knew immediately and instinctively that that's our go-to. And then we built on that to really kind of talk about what does it mean to be uncommon and how does that, in fact, create the connective tissue for all of us? You, Jim, don't consider yourself a classic multifamily developer. And so tell us a little bit about how you approach design from a human-centric perspective. Not only do I not consider myself a classic multifamily developer, I would say I have little to no equity to call myself a multifamily developer. There's many, many you know, you know, celebrated and accomplished firms that have been doing this for a long time. My background has been traditionally commercial and mixed use. We have historically spun off our multifamily to others, and usually those guys are smarter than me. In this case, what became fortuitous to us is that model was broken during COVID, and our buyer, like most, put everything on hold. So we were kind of forced into the business, and it really did then give us a chance to reflect on the importance of connecting the ethos and the experience around human-centered design that we had already applied to the mixed-use campus, and then asking ourselves the same questions. Well, how does this apply to where we put our heads down at night? Should we control that experience for the guests and the residents of Uncommons the same way we're controlling that experience for the occupiers of our office buildings or the visitors to our restaurants? And the answer became, of course, yes. And so we jumped into it, and I think turn that into our opportunity to operate with a childlike mind, to really go on an exploration of source to see what has historically worked. But I think importantly, spent our time asking kind of in a post-COVID world, what is going to change? What will the built environment look like? What are people in our future residents, what are their priorities going to be? And that is a lot different, I think, than historically people have responded to or built to. 
So we regrouped our human-centered or human experience design firm that helped us with the commercial and the mixed use that we had partnered up with Gensler in our previous exploits to bring the campus to life and started asking the same questions. What are these new priorities and have the fundamental needs and values of people changed post-COVID? And the answer was yes. And, and we responded to that. So what are some of those unique aspects of Uncommons with regard to chosen location or community itself and the overall plan? Tell us a little bit about that. We could spend two hours on this conversation to talk about that. And I also want to preface this conversation best with knowing that this is emerging learnings. And and I do not want to place Matter Real Estate Group or the work we're doing in Uncommons at some pedestal to say, we have it sorted out. I would only suggest that we are asking a lot of questions. We are challenging our traditional processes and and asking, does this still apply? So as we've gone through this, the biggest lights turn on for me when I just shut up and let myself be a good listener, I think, is a good way to look at it. And we're finding that particularly me in the role I serve and the comforts and the fortune I've been given by, you know, mostly, you know, luck and having good people around me, they distort my view of what I think is going on. So lesson number one is bring a group of stakeholders into a room, get out of the way, start listening, and allow for the very, you know, real probability that our assumptions up until that point are wrong. And as we started going through it, we, we had some very intense I won't say they weren't debates because I was the one getting the full frontal assault from some of these workshops that we put on from these younger generations that are disenfranchised. They're upset. They're angry. In many cases, they're listless. They're without hope. And I think my generation has done a horrible job of just stopping and listening. We instead want to reference our, well, you you got to work harder. It's about work ethic. And let me tell you about when I was younger. And it was a very you know, stark moment in one of these workshops where a, I was having that same attitude that I wish I could excuse now. And a, a young gentleman, probably in his you know, kind of late 20s, stood up in the back of the room and pointed at me. And I won't, you know, for the sake of your audience, you know, give the exact explicit you know, words he used. But in essence, he was what he was telling me is the dream you're espousing and pushing on us was available to your generation, not mine. In fact, your generation stole those very opportunities that you're espousing as our career path. So it changed my dimension and, and the anger was real. And it really, really taught me for the first time to stop thinking about what was important to me and then you know, force that on this next generation, but instead understand that for them, the idea of the, the white picket fence, the suburban home, no college debt, a job that pays a good wage where they can save and create you know, wealth for themselves, don't exist like they did for our generation. So what do they care about? You know, they care about connection. They care about moments with the people they love that add value to their life. They care about purpose. And, uh, you know, again, I'm speaking very generally, but I think these are the kind of big constructs that came out of it. They care about inclusion, but not in the same way that perhaps the media wants to talk about it. They talk about it in their own personal terms, that I want to be able to express my views and have civil discourse and non-judgment, to just be the, the version of myself that's truest to myself. And those are beautiful things. And I think our industry, as we start then taking those lenses 
of what these priorities are around personal fulfillment and connection and meaningful life and joy and inspiration. And so these are the very real emotional mandates that are, you know, are coming into our residence's life and, our, and we saw it in the office as well. Then you just look at the physical plants that we're building. Say, are they engineered to instigate and help and promote solutions? And Argue the answer is no. As developers, we've done a horrible job providing or catalyzing connection and collaboration and community. Instead, we built very tall vertical buildings. We've built a multifamily where you, you lock your door and you live behind the door. And that's not what people are caring for, at least in our work. No, and I think also, Jim, that there's been a bit of a sea change in how people look at things, how people want to have experiences, how people work together. I mean, I do think the pandemic inspired a lot of different things for people because of how we were so locked up. And I think it's wonderful that you're looking at things with this open mind and willing to change because it's hard for people to change how they think things should work. But it's really good for you for doing that. That's fantastic. Well, I appreciate it best. But again, I would say we don't deserve accolades. Remember that for us, we didn't have the historical reference of decades of doing this. So we were as much on a learning quest. So we didn't do stupid things. And along the way, we discovered you know all these wonderful little flower gardens of interest and inspiration that we're now leveraging into our real estate thinking. So Christine, when it comes to connectivity, what unique aspects are being brought to the table for Uncommons? I feel like I'm jumping on the bandwagon of Jim because, again, it's all about connectivity. And I think Jim's being a little bit humble because I was sharing with Jim that I did. I went out last week and I was up in Las Vegas and I went out and toured the property and just walked around. And keep in mind that much of this on the residential space is still under construction. They're still expanding in the retail and commercial space. But walking around that property with really, there's nobody living there, and the property was full. I walked along, some of the restaurants are open, the coffee shop is open, there's this amazing candle shop if you get into Las Vegas and go over to Uncommons, because all the candles smell like an alcoholic beverage. And so I had to buy multitudes of this candle for my staff or my team, just a cute little shop. But talking about connectivity and connectedness, you could really see that in the common spaces that are open today. And one of the things that Cox did and, and Jim's team engaged us, and again, you know, he's got a young crew that came to us and said, we want to make sure that no matter where our residents go, that they stay connected. And so we've gone in and we're deploying a bulk scenario, but also along with managed Wi-Fi. So as residents are walking around the property, they don't lose that connectivity. They're walking around, they're going to dine in the open space, they're going to have a cup of coffee with friends. And so our thought going in, and gosh, I can't tell you how many meetings we had with Jim and his team to really roll out the plan, because this is a multi-phase approach. And so we went in and we said, gosh, we've got to have numerous APs for the managed Wi-Fi. We really want to connect all services in. So Jim and his team brought in all of Cox services going into the building and said, you know what, we're going to have everything ready when our residents move in. So if they're working from home, they've got instant internet, they've got instant bandwidth going into that residential unit. And so their team, we worked very close together. They have another phase coming out and we still use those same guideline principles is keep that community connected. Jim, what can you tell us about your initial broadband vision and how you went about selecting a partner? 
just using the name broadband starts to make me uncomfortable because now we're venturing into technology solutions, which I am incapable of answering with any intelligence. But I will say this best, that there's a few things that I can't speak to. First, when it relates to technology, I think I am in some ways the lowest common denominator where to me, the technology and the infrastructure that's backing up that technology, I'm completely indifferent to. It's agnostic in my world. What I'm after is what is the experience and the solution that I am requiring as part of my daily activity at a project like Uncommons and the complexity. Well, I started with a very simple, like, well, just that Wi-Fi. Then my you know, group started making me more intelligent by pointing out the obvious. Well, if someone's working in their apartment and they're on you know, a certain device and speaking to a certain device for their coverage, and they start wandering with their laptop, maybe to Earth Cafe, which is a couple hundred feet from their front door, they need the continuation of that experience to remain you know, static to them. And they may then move from that coffee and, and then continue to venture up to their office at Morgan Stanley, another 100 feet. Now they're moving through buildings. All these different complexities, which I you know, naively thought had a simple solution, turned out to be incredibly complex particularly if you're also putting into the mind state of someone who doesn't want to understand the technology. They just want the light to turn on. So Cox was an obvious partner for us. And like, let me also make this very real. So I like any big company, you don't get everyone's attention. We're just yet another project, another group of raising their hand and calling impatiently because our needs must be more important. And nothing would have surprised me if we didn't get much more than that. But in the case of Cox, they really did become champions behind the larger mission here and the idea of doing complex work. We don't come across a lot of providers that will roll up their sleeves and, and uh, you know, offer up that they don't have the answers, but they do have the leadership to find the answers. And that's all we could have asked for in a partner and Cox to this day continues to show up and help in every possible way. And they've been wonderful for us. We, I'm sure, you know, inflict our own damage on them and vice versa. They're a very big company. It's never going to be perfect. What I care about is a famous line of thinking. It's the, the space between stimulus and response defines the character. Yep. I say that all the time. Yep. So um, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and I use it to kind of size people up in companies. In this case, it got tough in the dynamic tension on a complex project like this, but they were there and they uh, didn't pretend to have the answers, but they said, we'll find solutions. And we're still working through a lot of stuff as you come to life now and new surprises will, will show up. But I remain 100% confident that when I have a problem, I could call somebody and they'll give it the attention and more than anything, they care. And that's all I could ask for. Jim, what you pointed out is the space between stimulus you know, and response is so, I mean, so important to think about, especially when it comes to this, because the last thing you want is to be reactive and try to figure, you know, things out like quickly. And you want to take a moment, you want to look around, you want to talk to people, you want to do your due diligence and figure out what makes the most sense. And taking space is, I think, one of the most important things that you can do, particularly in this space, so that you can look around and figure out what is the right thing? Listen to people. So I think that is such a brilliant way to put it. And I love that. I say that too all the time. So it really connected with me. So thank you for saying that. Christine, what were some of the unique things that Uncommons looked for when they were planning service? And can you please detail the type of installation that resulted from your partnership to achieve that vision? 
Yeah, Bess, when we sat down with Jim and his team in the very beginning, there's many different directions they could have gone. They could have said, you know what, just bring us connectivity and we'll wire it directly. Then each tenant can be responsible for their services. And that was not the approach that Uncommons took. You know, we brought in our engineers, we sat down with his folks, his construction folks. And when all the dust settled, we opted to bring in a bulk service. And so they were basically leaders of the pack for several years. Builders, developers were really looking for an exclusive marketing type of approach. But Jim and his team decided to bring in a bulk service to where we're providing video, we're providing internet. And by doing that, we bring in a 10 gig service into that property, giving them a tremendous bandwidth that not only the Cox residential services can run, on, but because we also have our business division, Cox Business, as we're going in and wiring up for Uncommons, we're not skipping a beat because Cox Business has now the ability to ride our network and come in and provide services to the retail and commercial space. And so that was really the overall aspect of when we were sitting down at the table saying, what next? Where do we start? And then what's going to be next? And really, it was all about making sure that every phase of the Uncommons development, because it's really like its own little city. You've got commercial space over here and you've got residential coming in here. You've got parking garages here. And there's so many things to keep in mind as you're building out an infrastructure like Uncommons. You've got common space, you've got parking garages, you've got commercial space, retail space. And so it really does take a village on both sides to sit down at the table and say, okay, what are we going to do? And what are the possibilities? So it's not just saying here, we're going to give you package A, B, or C. It's really saying, what do you guys want to accomplish? What do you all want to accomplish at Uncommons? Because we want to be there. We want to help you. Well, in today's day and age, there's always a lot of residents who are working from home in this hybrid and remote world of employment. So Jim, what impact do you see these broadband services having on attracting and retaining residents? Well, I would say it's table stakes. I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question other than it seems incredibly obvious that much like people expect the power to work and their environment to be controllable, I think where it's extended beyond that is they expect it all to show up on their phone. They wanna be able to have total control over their domain and agency over their experience. So how do they interact and what's the interface that allows them to interact with all these you know, now disparate technologies being bundled into a place? Do I have to go to a separate app to deal with my security? Do I have to look at my broadband? Do I have to update to let somebody in my door? Can I see my door? Can I update my thermostat without having, I mean, there's all these pieces I think today are common expectations. So if you don't have that, then my first question is, well, how do you expect to maintain occupancy if in fact the very utility value that people require out of their home environment is not there. I think you the broader curiosity I had, you know, best was when people started talking about this idea that, you know, this kind of industry standard, 25 to 30 percent of your residents move out every year. I, I've never been in a business where you actually operate and expect 30 percent of your residents every year vote to go somewhere else. I think there's a broader question that's embedded in that, which is what part of these lifestyle changes are we not speaking to? Why would I ever deal with the friction and the pain and this the cost of relocating unless my emotional needs weren't being held up? So I think the you know, we, we in many ways put this in the same context as we do our own human relationships. 
And you know, for us, if someone is moving out to a competitive property, our first answer, we have failed them. It's not a normalcy to have people leave your business. The work is acquiring them. Once they're there, now it's how do we create meaningful moments in their day where we can look at our collective selves and say we made their life better day by day by day. And I think that's the bigger thing at work here, which is how do we start bringing some level of fulfillment? How do we start addressing the emotional needs? And I don't mean to get soft tissue. I Children have grown. They're off into their own world. I'm, I'm in a place in life where I, I don't have to pretend to be anybody anymore. What I have really taken great interest, though, is understanding the pain that this generation is going through. I have three daughters. Just the idea that I got them out of college without having emotional distress and therapy because of, right, of societal pressures and expectations. And now you, we layer in this, you know, these new quotients of, of loneliness and people spending too much time at home and not connecting with friends. I think there is first a stewardship and a responsibility we have to ask these questions because first and foremost, I am building the very environment where people will show up to work, meet friends for a beer, maybe take in a movie, meet the love of their life, have a place to sleep and call home and perhaps start a family. I just think we, societally, we have a big, big problem that is deteriorating the, the mental health and the value and purpose and fulfillment people are getting out of life. The work from home phenomenon now is, it's a bigger question to me, is what is the office not giving to people that makes the choice of staying home a better choice? What is the lack of community doing and contributing to social isolation and people dealing with mental health crisis around loneliness? What are we not doing in our residential spaces that invite and encourage and instigate these moments of serendipity where people can have a reason to get back out? I've toured so – you probably asked me about technology, by the way. <laughs> no, but so you know, I told you he was going to go. <laughs> no, but it's Jim, on. You're, you're on point. I mean, look, I got a lot of criticism, which is okay, that, you know, because when we were closed down during the pandemic and then we required all – I'm a we're a private company – required all of our employees to come back to the office. I'm in real estate and it's a relationship business. And I believe that culture can only be built when you're together. I think you can do Zooms, you that do, can work on occasion and that's fine. But I also think you gotta connect with people. You gotta look at them, you gotta talk to them, you gotta see how they're doing. You gotta emotionally understand what's going on. If you wanna have a great culture, I don't think you build culture on Zooms and I agree with you completely. I think it's bad for everything, the economy, the stores, everybody, they need people on the streets, they need people coming into the office. Office culture is important. I agree with what you're saying. I think it's so important today and prevalent. It was the you know the, the fine folks at Gensler that started coining the, the expression, the office needs to be a destination, not an obligation. And I think that's what, you know, really the great opportunity here for all of us is a total rethink of the places we have been making. And with Gensler as well, I mean, they, they're extraordinary at sense of place to the point where it's almost expected and cliche when you talk about mixed use and Gensler and, and creating great places. But what is lost in that conversation is creating a sense of belonging. How do I create an emotional attachment where people can fall in love with their environment? And I think we put ourselves at risk as we respond to great architecture or many of my peers will, will pick out stone and art and all based on their own preference and bias. 
people don't give a shit anymore. What they're after is an emotion. See, I told you once. Once we take I the filter off, but I gave you permission, so <laughs> we're putting a quarter in the swear jar for you. Don't worry about it. This is on you. I think we just need to start our conversations around design with what is the emotional outcome that we're seeking from the people who are going to utilize this environment, and it completely reframes what you're going to build and what, how you're going to design. So when we first started you know, bringing in human-centered or human experience design into our work with Gensler, the language turned from materiality and architecture and fenestration and the pride and egos of people like me and designers as we design some edifice that's more of a tribute to our ourselves and our taste instead of the people that are going to occupy it, which uh, I'm shamefully guilty of like many others. When you start asking how do you want to feel when you wake up in the morning? How would you, you know, express yourself when you're connecting with other people? How would you know that your day made you 1% better? How would you challenge yourself from a physical standpoint to you know, make your body work? How would we contribute intellectually to your curiosity, your inspiration? You know, so all these different languages started you know, floating around and it forced us to look at the environment holistically for the first time perhaps and more importantly look at it through the lens of the human journey of the people that were going to show up here in some cases live there in some cases maybe meet a friend there but all of them provide us an opportunity to make a positive contribution to their day if you know our charge as a company is just for a moment to have the people that enjoy our real estate just for a moment, if I could interfere in their day and help them forget a bit of pain or suffering that they're experiencing, like everybody, which is another discovery that we came across. And if for that brief moment, I could you know, interfere with that and get them to smile or appreciate. Maybe it's a, you know, they took the moment to, to read about, you know, our streets are named after civic leaders that were not recognized by communities, people of color or of you know, gender that were simply not popular in the 50s or 60s and didn't ever get to the rise to the right spot. So we partnered with the history department at the local university and said, well, who are these people and how do we celebrate them? And they came out of everywhere. And now you could, you know, there's QR codes on our street signs and you can, you know, see an interview with someone like Helen Tolan and why is the street named after Helen Tolan? And have her show up on your screen and tell you about her journey in life. There's these little touch points we've spread throughout this entire 40-acre campus for people to find something to just for a moment to improve their day. That's my job. And you're giving people a bit of an education at the same time, which is nourishment for the brain. I mean, we all need to like keep learning more and you're stretching people, which is so good. I'll tell you, you, one of the things I think is going to be the headwind for this type of thinking, we're a company that punches far above its weight, meaning we're still entrepreneurial. We're not a giant publicly traded REIT. So there aren't rules, systems, and implications for taking risk. In a much more vertical organization, there's no incentive for design thinking like this because to be out on a limb exposes you. You're not going to get fired for doing what has always been done. You will get fired for doing things that haven't been done. So for Matter and for a product like Uncommons, I think it was a just a rather serendipitous moment where the right type of company, the right type of curiosity, the right type of capital and the ability to execute all kind of find themselves in the same stew, so to speak. And of all places, we're in a city like Las Vegas, which is another contradiction. The whole idea that we're talking about these very human-centered principles and talking about 
expressive words like joy and empathy and compassion and loving and kindness and all these abstract emotions all coming to bear on real estate. And oh, by the way, I'm doing it in a city that most people would look at and say, perhaps it's the antithesis or it's about the debauchery and the materialism and the consumption. I actually kind of, at first I was a little scared, but now I love the contradiction of those two events taking place in the same municipality. A little cognitive dissonance, I guess, right? Very cool. Thank you for that, Jim. Christine, as the infrastructure provider for both sides at Uncommons, how do things differ from the residential versus the commercial side? I think I kind of hit on that for a little bit on what we provided, but I'll take you through my walk that I did last week. As I walk through the property and he's talking about bringing that connectedness in, Jim, I think you take another 10 acres and just make it common area space because people were sitting on the ground with their laptops. And so when you talk about how are they functioning, coming from the work environment, working from home, and how do they open up? I'm certain that several of those folks sitting on were on a video call, sitting on the grass and sitting at the tables as they were doing their day's work. I also saw folks coming out of that commercial space and walking over to Earth and some of the in the uh, lunch spots. So as we go in and we sit down again, like I said, we're bringing everybody to the table. We're sitting down. We're saying, okay, what kind of network? And on the business side, it's not like Jim is going to go in and buy services for every commercial service going in there. I mean, obviously, that's going to be at the decision of that business customer. And so we just make sure that Cox Business is piggybacking off of the residential service going in and that it's there the day they open up their door. So, you know, as soon as that commercial business moves in, they have the opportunity to order Cox services. Residential services are there well in advance. We make sure we're in a trench. And again, it's all about the connectivity and plenty of bandwidth. I would say that most important, probably with the generations coming up, they're going to say, my internet's more important than water. I don't care if I can't take a shower for three days, but I want to make sure that I've got internet and I want to be able to walk around my property and have internet. That's for teenagers, especially. I mean, (laughs) a teenager, I remember when Wi-Fi is not working or things are, I mean, it's not, it's not a good situation, but I think I'm a little more tolerant. I'd rather have water than internet, but what do I know? I'm Gen (laughs) X. I know nothing. So Jim, you said that you're a thriving, walkable community devoted to honest dialogue, provocative ideas, and empathetic collaboration. And I think one of the really fascinating aspects of the planning for the community is how matter is taking advice from cultural anthropologists, neuroscientists, psychologists, and healthcare professionals to consider humanity, mental health, and wellness. What can you tell us about the process and how the advice you have received has shaped your designs for the community? I know you just mentioned historical figures as an example and the QR codes, but are there, tell us anything else that you can impart and share about that. There's a couple steps along the way. I think they're important to put context with why we brought that level of subject matter experts into the conversation here. So when we first started, we really did focus on human-centered design, and uh, this was pre-COVID. So the early intention was around community belonging, having a a culture of of care and compassion. The first kind of four big stakes were hospitality driven, community minded, a place for high performance work to be done 
and a place where people would find inspiration and wonder. So those were the kind of four operating silos. We designed with those intentions and hired street artists to do work around the campus, put those beautiful inspiration quotes, named our streets and, and, and the likes created gathering spaces, you know, similar to what Christine's mentioned, where people have a reason to be in the same proximity to one another and make that convenient. Along the way, so we literally were starting construction about the same time New York was shutting down. So we hit pause, like many others. I'll celebrate a gentleman by the name of Ethan Penner, who is our capital partner, who in fact said, do you guys still want to go? And you know, when COVID was coming on, I said, we do, but we want to get a little smarter first. So we brought the group back together from the experience design work, but then introduced neuroscience and healthcare experts specifically, because what we are after is, if this is an ongoing chronic, had we known then you know, to what we know now, event across humanity, what are the implications post this event? Two things that came out from the neuroscientists specifically is how the non-conscious mind has no concern in the world whether or not we're happy. And the sooner people start to accept that, you'll realize why all these things are allowed to invade us. It sounds like best you spend a bit of time and attention on mindfulness, so probably not a new concept to you. But what will the non-conscious mind do after it's been exposed to this experience of COVID? And what became critically important to us is that people, whether they want to consciously acknowledge it or not in the future, will constantly be seeking safety. The scientists at one you know, moment kind of said, you know, doorknobs at a non-conscious level will equal death in the sense that people are now starting you know, early COVID. We thought everything was transferred around on surfaces. And like, look, people will no longer look at the front door anymore as a, a door you pushed open. At the non-conscious level, thing, is it safe? Can that door or anyone who's touched it kill me? And again, not happening processing in the frontal side, but you know, really all at the non-conscious level. So fear is going to take hold to people and still being used and weaponized against the idea of returning to work. Like, I don't want to get sick, really, but you'll get on an airplane, you'll do that. So, you'll so, get so. in a car, which is the number one. I mean, people drive, well, that's like the number one cause of death, morbidity is, you know, accidents in cars. The least time you can spend in the car, the better. It's just, it's yeah. a fact. But people don't want to, you know, deal with data. Never. They want to deal with the emotion. And, and uh, so immediately we advanced the buildings to become well certified. So not, not sure how much you follow well certification, but it's the equivalent of LEED certification, where that focuses on the building and the environment. Well certification focuses on the health of the occupants. So it is the toughest, most rigorous science-backed certification a building can get. When we started in Commons, there was not a building in the state that was well certified because it's hard and it's expensive and it wasn't a consideration. We knew going forward, that's the first box people are going to want to tick. So big, profound improvement to our project was to make sure that to every chief people officer, human resource department or any other, that we could say we made the health of your people and your team a highest priority and we built an environment to do just that. The next piece that was incredibly clear to both cultural anthropologists, neuroscientists and psychologists that we interviewed for this is our need for human connection which is in very much in contradiction to what we're talking about, where people are still at home. And what is the mental health implications? Loneliness, depression, lack of fulfillment, lack of joy. No surprise that we learned very early in the COVID experience that people want to hug one another. They want to be in proximity. From the birth of man, we have had community and our tribal beliefs and connecting to one another and loved ones and community members is endearing and critical to our very survivability. 
So that's what we pivoted to is how do we now amplify connection? How do we amplify community? One last little event. So now we're on this train thinking, okay, we now have the pieces to the puzzle sorted out. And then Black Lives Matter hits. And now we're looking at social dislocation. And it forced us again to take another step back and say, well, what do we know about inclusion? And I don't mean what I think I know. I mean, what do I really know? And I'll tell you a great story, and, and you guys can you know, completely identify with it. We hired, at this point, a director of community and belonging. Wonderful human being. She reminds me every day that I do not have it figured out and that I have a lot of blind spots. And they showed up the first time when we were working with a local charity in Las Vegas that works to make sure that women specifically have period protection, that they make you know, you know, feminine products available for free with no shame, easy to access. And they exposed me to this whole you know, construct of how complicated that was, which I thought, of course, everyone has access to these products in, in women. And I learned, no, and it's, it creates a real health hazard for a lot of people. So there's this project called Project Maryland, and they are working to eradicate that in the community. Wonderful. I mean, I can get behind that. My director of community belonging shows up and says, oh, by the way, here's what this system looks like in the men's room. I said, well, let's talk about that. I went to school. I'm pretty sure it doesn't apply here. Okay, well, we did say we're going to work on, you know, inclusion will be a hallmark of this community. I said, of, uh, of course. Would you say that you have awareness that, or at least can you acknowledge for me that there are women who identify as men? Said, sure. And where do you think they're going? I said, well, okay, just, they'll be in the men's room. So are we going to discriminate against them? I do not have the answer to that, by the way. Right, of course. Nobody does because we're all learning. It's a learning curve for everybody. We're all learning. But what, it, again, is it just shines a light into these dark, scary corners. That, okay, if you really want to stand up and champion these issues and be a part of the progressive change that you know, people are seeking, where does it start? Where does it end? And it's complicated. And so you know, as I speak to people on these issues from our own learnings is, be careful because once you open the conversation and then do what I did was declare your authenticity to get behind them, some real hard questions are going to be presented to you as a leader and you're going to have to make some decisions that may be contradictory to what you just told your team you're going to do. So uh, we're working through it. We navigate through it. I empower my team to call bullshit yep. when they don't think we're being true. And um, it's hard. That's all, you know, what I can really tell you. Well, I think a good point from all of that or something to, to think about is that it's not binary. Nothing is sort of like this black or white or it's tweetable or a slogan. Most things are nuanced and very complicated, whatever the topic is. And I think, you know, we live in this social media world of just tweeting out things and getting people riled up. But most things require a lot of intellectual rigor. And it also requires discussion. And you can't get angry at people because they don't understand. Have discussions with them. Let us learn. I want to learn. I want to teach. Like, be open. I think that's one of the cultural challenges in the United States today, is that people just are sure that they're right and they get angry if you question things. So I would hope that there's, it sounds like what you, you've created is a dialogue, a place for discussion. And people feel safe and they belong and they can ask. And I think that's brilliant. So I, I say, you know, we're trying best. So I, I don't want to profess that we've, you know, figured this out. You're not perfect. Out. Nobody <laughs> is. No, no. 
Um, I will say though, we, we took one big giant you know step and made another you know significant investment into the campus, and we're building a multi-purpose conference pavilion, aptly named the Assembly. And the assembly is both, uh, you know, has a business application for groups that need to have reason to gather with 100 to 200 people and want the convenience of the food and the facility to be on campus to uncommons. But within that, this last person I just hired last week, her job is to program it, not only to work with the companies that have a utility need, but also to program with the community voices that need a place to show up and feel safe that there can be a civil conversation so we can debate these uncomfortable topics and do so in a way that people can you know, bring their opinions, their voices, their concerns and questions into an environment where we can get the ugliness out on the table and the squishiness that goes with it and talk about it and come out maybe not with a result or an answer, but making sure that Uncommons as a important member of the community is also leading the conversations around the community voice. Fantastic. Well, we're coming to the end. I just want to give Christine an opportunity. Also, anything you want to share, any you know, words of wisdom, any thoughts as we close out, and then I'll end with you, Jim. Obviously, Jim keeps pointing out, he goes, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And I would say we had some learnings as we walk through on commons, you know, as we've been going through this build. And it really took us an opportunity, I would say, Jim, to really establish our relationship just a little bit stronger. Sometimes you bring a couple folks to the table when you begin the project. And then as the project kind of moves along, you might have that need to reach out. And so I would say as you're going through, again, just like Jim said, as you sit down to the table, make sure you have all the players at the table. You may not have 100%, but if you can get 80% of the players at the table, you'll be able to have that vision as to not only what you're building for today, but what you're building for five years down the road. I hate to say that anymore. I feel like the last five years, we jumped ahead at max speed just to get to where we are today in technology. I mean, it's gaining off the charts. Everybody wants five gig to their home. I'm not quite sure what they'll do with five gig, but everybody wants that fast bandwidth. And so I would just say through our learnings and working with Uncommons and the Matter team is to really make sure you have all the players sitting at the table in the very beginning. You know, Jim and his team have the bat phone that goes directly to our executives if something were to arise. And so we have just absolutely loved working with both the Matter and the Uncommons team. This has been such a fun project for, I'll just say for myself, my team and for Cox. Thank you for that, Christine and Jim. Final thoughts. I'm leaving it to you. It's tough to close, but I think I wouldn't you know, specifically close anything about Uncommons as much as I think this is a chance for all of us to have broader collective awareness and an opportunity to perhaps reframe or at least add some other metrics to how we measure the success of what we do. My industry you know, has, has long since established its success based upon you know, some very simple metrics, excusing that we sell for a profit, but what is our occupancy and what is our you know, rent per square foot? And the, the more those are in the positives, if I've just told somebody I have 96% occupancy and I'm achieving record rents per square foot, we would declare that is uniformly a successful project. I think it's time to introduce some other metrics around the humanity and the reaction and the contribution we're making to the people that occupy or utilize these buildings. Perhaps it's time to ask, did you leave with a net promoter score? Did people you know, on their exit interview say, this property contributed to my life, it contributed to my journey, it contributed to my professional pursuits? 
Did it make me a better human? Did it make me more caring? Did I have more restorative time for me to become the best version of me? Now, I'm certainly not smart enough to at least define what those might look like, but I think it's time for us to start introducing the conversation and the very possibility that we have missed a large part of our responsibility here in delivering buildings and then measuring them on financial metrics alone. It is time to measure our contribution to the people that utilize these buildings. And I would say, not only is it time, I would argue it's our responsibility and the next decade, perhaps the next two decades will be definitive to our society and our industry collectively, the people that are responsible for bringing the neighborhoods and the workplaces and the gathering social nodes to life, we're on trial. And if we fail at this, we deserve to be harshly judged for our actions. I hope instead we can point to a lot of projects a decade from now and say, look at the contribution we just made. Look at the joy and the fulfillment or satisfaction we're giving to people that extends beyond the bounds of, did I pay rent or not? But instead, do I occupy a place that enriches my life in some way? So well said, Jim. And thank you so much, Christine, both of you. Really wonderful guests. Loved having you today and have a great rest of the afternoon. Lovely. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Jim and Christine for being on the show today and discussing how restorative spaces can instigate connection and the best ways to create community and purposeful lifestyles in a mixed-use environment. You can learn more about Uncommons at uncommons.com. And for more on the amazing work that Matter Real Estate Group is doing, check out their website at matterrealestate.com. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Thanks again for listening. I'm Bess Friedman. This has been Open Door, brought to you by Cox Communities.